Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 195 of the Simply Fit Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andy Chi Chu Chan. Andy is a health and fitness coach and author with a master's degree in exercise science. Andy's journey began with him pursuing career in football with the hopes of one day becoming a professional. He found that the work he was doing in the gym wasn't necessarily contributing towards his performance on the field and later in his career found that the traditional approach to exercise and nutrition wasn't leaving his clients with the best long-term results either. He began searching for the answer and discovered that for himself and his clients, traditional Chinese medicine was the missing link. He's since been on a journey to open people's minds to something that seems quite spiritual and esoteric at first glance, but realistically can be integrated into a traditional Western approach to create more balance within your body, mind, and dare I say it, spirit. In this conversation, you can expect to learn what the term dynamic balance means along with some of the core principles of TCM, how our unregulated emotions may be impacting our weight loss or muscle building efforts, how Andy integrates dynamic balance into his own life, along with so much more. So without further ado, Andy Chi Chu Chan. Andy, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you coming on so late at night. We are on contrasting time zones at the moment. So it's 6.30 in the morning for me. And what time is it for you? It's 8.30 at night, right after dinner. (laughs) I like it. At least, at least you're well-fueled and well-fed for today's conversation. So for those who have may have not come across yourself before, who are you and what is it that you do? Yeah. Hey, everyone. My name is Andy Chan. And, you know, these days if you go on the internet, if you look for fitness advice, I think there's an overwhelming of information out there. And a lot of people don't even know where to start, really. And so as a, as a coach, as an educator, as a presenter with a master's degree in exercise science, my job is to help people unpack all these overwhelming knowledge so that people don't have to waste time doing things that don't actually help them, but actually incorporate practices that elevates their athletic performance as well as overall health. Amazing. And what got you started on your own personal fitness journey? My own fitness journey, I was in the United States for college. And growing up, I, I loved playing soccer or football. And I wanted to become a professional football player one day in Hong Kong. And and then I was in the U.S. for the first year of university. And in the U.S., you've got to be pretty big in order to attract girls. Uh, at least we believe that. <laughs> and so like most other freshmen, I, I went into the gym, hoping to gain 
10, 15 pounds just to look a bit bulkier so I can attract some girls on the weekends. So that's kind of uh, how I got started. I tell people I train for better athletic performance, but really I train for better aesthetics. Yeah, I think we can definitely, we can all relate to that as some degree. We're all like, yeah, we're just doing it for our health. But the reality is, it's just, we just want to look better. But tell us about, I read in your book about your first experience in the gym, which was really interesting. So can you tell us about the instructor that you met and when she took you onto the in-body scales? Yeah, for sure. So I was 18 at the time, 18, 17, and I was back in Hong Kong for the summer and I've got to get ready for my gym routine. So I showed up to my local gym, which is about five minutes away. And I went there and I sat down, there was this sales lady, she came up and she's like, oh, let me talk to you about a sales membership. And I was like, yeah, 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 okay. And after we signed the contract, she's like, oh, we'll give you a free assessment. And even the 17-year-old me know, knew that these assessments are usually scams because they just bait you into more sessions. So I was like, hey, look, I, I don't need any sessions. I don't need any assessments. Just let me do my thing. Then she's like, uh, what of this? We'll just get you away so, so why don't you come with us to the scale? And she walked me to the in-body machine. And you know, the in-body machine is like two inches off the ground. <laughs> and she's like, oh, hey, let me help you on. And so she grabbed onto my left arm, uh, to my biceps, and she held onto my arm and got me onto the in-body machine. And she's like, wow, you've got girly arms, don't you? And as an athlete growing up, there, there's nothing more condescending. There's nothing more degrading than that statement right there. So I was like, hey, look, you get me the biggest trainer in your gym right now and I'll get started tomorrow. And so there I got 10 sessions and, and we got started. She did a great job, huh? She really hit you where it hurts. <laughs> it does. And then turns out they, they, they kind of incorporate similar tactics to everyone. I mean, they find your weakness and, and address it. Yeah, I had a similar experience at my age, but it was actually with a gym goer himself. And I asked him to work in with a, I think it was an assisted pull-up machine. He's like, sure, you clearly need it more than I do. I was like, thanks. And that co- that, that comment has stayed with me for the, the next decade of my life. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because, you know, after all, I think most people work for aesthetic purposes. So if you just comment on their body image, of course, they're just going to be, you know, natural a little bit of and course. be insecure. Yeah, exactly. But you've made your way along the line since then. And obviously, you now do a lot of coaching. You've obviously now produced your first book, which we'll touch on in just a moment. But what took you down that path? What made you think that health and fitness, strength and conditioning was the route that you wanted to take versus football, in fact? Sure. So in 2014, after I graduated from university in, in the US, I came back to Hong Kong and, and I was sending out some messages, some emails, some cold emails to different coaches asking for an opportunity to perhaps go on trial. And I did. I, I got some offers. Uh, some coaches were graciously, uh, they graciously offered me the opportunity to train with the first team. And so I trained with a team called Yunlong FC. And a little bit of background story. At that point, I would have had done bodybuilding type training for 45 years now. So typical chest day, back day, leg day, etc. So I showed up to uh, the trial or the training. And I remember I was about three to four days in and, and we were doing some agility drills where we did different stuff on the ladder and stuff. And the fitness coach pulled me aside and he was like, Hey, you know, Andy, when people change direction, they kind of just change direction. But when you change direction, you're like a robot because you have your arms to the side and you turn 180 degrees before you dash. And you're, you're always that split second slow and, and that really hurts your performance. So I had like an epiphany there because I, at that moment, I realized perhaps that things that were, I was doing in the gym was actually not conducive to my movements on the pitch. And it didn't really help my football career. And, and so I was on a quest for knowing more about uh, strength and conditioning, knowing more about performance enhancement, which led me to different certifications. And ultimately, I went back to school to do my master's. And that's kind of how it, it shaped 
my movement-based training approach because for me, experiencing it firsthand, well, nothing against bodybuilding, but for me, it just didn't transfer to performance on the pitch. And, and it really hurt uh, me because it crushed my dreams. So I, I have this innate passion to help others who are looking for better sports performance. It's fine doing bodybuilding, but they have to also complement it with things that is transferable to uh, performances on the pitch. That's really insightful. Yeah, and I completely agree. Funnily enough, we have very similar backstories. I had a similar situation where I was a lot younger. I was doing college football at the time, college soccer, uh, college football, just to clarify which one it was. And I got an injury and that's what led me into the gym. And I just ended up training, training, training. And it, I don't think it really actually served me that well because it was just bench press, bicep curls. I'd started training at the time. So I was already a little bit bigger than most of the guys there, but I don't think it particularly helped me because I would consider what I would do today from a perspective of like working through different planes and everything like that. But I was just like bicep curls, bench press. I did some legs, but I kind of ignored my back for the most part as well. But it's funny how a lot of athletes without guidance, especially when they're a lot younger, will just do as you mentioned in your book, just the cool things, right? The bench press, what everyone else is doing. And for sure. And everything was random and haphazard because you just kind of did whatever the cool guy did. Exactly. And then obviously as your career progressed, you started working with different clients and you tell a story about a client who you were working with. And can you just touch on a little bit why the traditional approach of just doing a bodybuilding program, getting a nutrition plan and training really, really hard every single week became actually more of an issue because that's traditionally what I imagine most people who are listening are doing right now. So I want to go there if you don't mind sharing that story. No, I don't mind. So I worked with a client named Brian and, and with Brian, we worked together for three years. And initially uh, he came in and he said he wanted transformation. And to be honest, I told him that that does not my area of expertise uh, because on, on the side topic, I, I believe us as, as coaches in order to progress the or progress uh, the industry, we all should have something that we're kind of specialized in, right? So I told him body transformation is not something that I, I specialize in, although I, I could help you obviously with the basic principles. And so we started training and I think within four months, uh, he kind of got off, 50, got rid of 15 pounds and he was happy with his progress. And at that time, we we're seeing each other three, three times a week. So then he was like, okay, actually, I, I'm not happy with my progress. We need to make some faster gains or faster losses. And we started seeing each other six times a week. And I said, hey, look, not only six times a week, quite taxing financially, it's quite taxing uh, physically as well uh, to your wallet and to your body. But he didn't care. And and at the time, so he, he would train me for six weeks. And in terms of diet, he would just do chicken breast, broccoli, broccoli, maybe a little bit of potatoes. Because he read online, it's just all about protein and all about lean protein. And then he didn't have much variety. So I think that the danger within that is he burned out. I mean, I think at one point, he from the beginning point of when we started working to his leanness, I think he got rid of a hundred pounds or something like that. And, and he takes some wonderful photos, but it just wasn't sustainable and it, it wasn't sustainable mentally and physically. So he, he ended up having a bit of a rebound. And the last time I saw him, he was back to his old self and it was back to his old self. And, and in writing this book, I, you know, I got his permission to share the story because I, I, I told him the danger of sometimes going all out, going on a sprint is that you know, by the end of the sprint, you, you're going to be so tired. And, and instead, I, I do believe that perhaps if we kind of go at it with a realistic expectation, look, you could lose a lot of weight in, in a short period of time, but you have to make sure you, you maintain that. And just by having the expectation of it, you do much better than thinking, oh, I'll just lose it and keep it. Right. But back to your point, I think 
when it comes to body transformation, it is super critical that you have a knowledgeable coach uh, because all this stuff is real. And if you're guided by the right person that has adequate fitness knowledge, that has adequate nutrition knowledge, uh, one that doesn't just tell you to take random supplements, but actually has a, has a good idea of how the system works and what we should do to your body, I think it will accelerate the process and ensure that you don't experience the rebound. Yeah, I think a huge aspect to that as well is that they actually care about your long-term health, right? Because there will be a lot of coaches out there who are just keen to get that transformation photo. Look how well I did with my client. And once they're done and dusted, they don't do that aftercare. That was a similar story in my life as well. I worked in a lot of transformation studios, nothing against them. They were fantastic, but the model was built on getting you in and out and in shape in the quickest time possible. And that's why when I created my own business, I was like, I want to focus on getting to people to where they want to be, of course, but also making sure that they can stay there as well, right? Because that's probably the missing component in the industry right now. Oh, I agree with you. And and I love your holistic approach. I mean, I've listened to your podcast, the ones, the one about you chasing after the train in London, skill transfer, things inside the gym, outside the gym, and the holistic approach. I think you know, it sets you apart from other body transformation coaches. Yeah, I think it's important. I think it's a really important next step for just about everyone to take. And I think at some point, ethically, it will start to grate on you if you realize that, like you said, with a guy that you've just seen and he's back to his normal self, there's something... If you do genuinely care about what you do, there's something that feels a little bit heart sinking about that. Whereas you know how much work they put in to get there. And you also know that they didn't have to go down that path. So it's interesting that you had two epiphanies, the first one on the football field, and then the second one with, with the guy that you uh, was training as well. So obviously that brings us on to Dynamic Balance, which is the book that you've published last month, if I'm right to say. It is. Yeah. January 4th. Amazing, which I've got right here. So if you're watching on YouTube when I do upload this, I've got it with me here. And what I was just saying to Andy off air is it was an incredibly digestible read for something that could seem quite complex. So obviously with all that experience you had, you determined that a better long-term holistic approach was to combine the Eastern and the Western approach. So you can, can you talk to us a little bit more about the concept of the book and then we'll dive into the details a little bit more. Sure. Well, I think we live in, uh, in a day and age where information is readily accessible, which means we can actually take the best information out there. And a little bit about my story, I am originally from Hong Kong, based in Hong Kong, but I spent 10 years in the United States. So for me, I've kind of grown up having this East versus West approach because things, things are just so different. But my own philosophy is, you know, if I could take the best of both parts, why not do that? And, and yet, if you go online these days, if you search anything traditional Chinese medicine, for lack of a better word, things are usually quite mysterious or weird, right? You go on the Chinese medicine website and they'll talk to you about qi and all these five elements and all these energy within you that's circulating. And it becomes very spiritual almost. And and for me as an athlete, it it I, I don't think it would help me if I just look at something as mysterious as this. So for diet balance, we really wanted to make sure we present Chinese medicine in a digestible way so that people will see that when the ancient scholars wrote these doctrines thousands of years ago, it was based on logical thinking. It wasn't based on, you know, some meditation that they did with the, with, with some gods that they wrote down these things. Well, it was based on a uh, trial and error. And, and so that's a big thing of our book. We wanted to examine the intersection between Chinese medicine as well as fitness. So that fitness enthusiasts can at least have a basic understanding of Chinese medicine. And well, then you might ask, so what is the premise of Chinese medicine? And the premise of Chinese medicine is that everything is interconnected. So we talked about three areas. We talked about diet, we talked about emotions, and we talked about fascia because we think that these three areas are most pertinent to athletic performance. Uh, but in reality, in Chinese medicine, they'll talk about how everything, literally, maybe the season, uh, your body can 
your body condition within you. They're all connected. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who are interested in it because I feel there is a lot more of a maybe a collective awakening among people realizing that there isn't just one way to do things and that way is leading to burnout and just feels almost too hard to so to speak right and there will be the other people who still want that quick fix who won't be able to do anything unless it's you know got science back behind it that's very easy and clear to see or maybe marketed by supplement companies and something that's very easy to take so when you when people first hear this concept do you get a lot of backlash on the sense of it seems too mysterious it seems too hard to implement the western approach is probably going to be faster and more effective what do you say to those people to those people, I would usually ask them, you know, do you feel comfortable popping 10 pills a day? Because, <laughs> because the reality is, you know, the other day I was reading Deep Nutrition. Uh, it's, it's a book that's on the historic diets of the world. And I was talking about how a lot of the stuff in the supplement industry, a lot of vitamins are artificially made. You could just kind of get all the vitamins you, you need in one bowl of soup. And why go through all the supplements, all the pills that you do. And, and, and I think we, nowadays people start to realize that, well, perhaps real food is more beneficial for us because it's more natural. And I think usually when, when I, when I present it that way, I guess I don't want to say I'm guilty bring them, but it's certainly a lot more relatable when I say that, well, don't you want to be eating real food rather than just having supplements as your primary source of nutrition? Because uh, supplements are meant to be supplements. Right? If, you're, if you're not eating enough, then obviously. But I think we're now at the point where people are having consuming supplements as if it's just the main meal. And then I think that's a big problem. So usually when I just kind of go at it from a natural side, on very few instances, do I get an argument back? Yeah, as, as I was just about to say, I think deep down, everyone knows that that's the truth. I think people fundamentally know that. So with that being said, I just want to clarify, you do think supplements have a place, they just shouldn't be the majority of what we do. Oh, for sure. Because I think uh, the truth is we we're definitely uh, are not eating in a variety of foods. And, and as a result, we, we do need to supplement, especially if we are looking to gain muscles or, or in terms of athletic performance. And then we know that adequate amount of supplementation is helpful. I think the question is how much and which ones to take. For sure. For sure. So let's uh, take a step back and go through the fundamentals. So if someone's never heard of the concept of TCM before, what would you say the fundamental principles are? Sure. The fundamental principle is that everything is intricately linked. So they, you, you hear the word a lot, harmony, harmony, harmony. Uh, that the whole point is, let's say in terms of lifestyle, when it comes to diet, for example, the easiest illustration is in Chinese medicine, there are nine different archetypes of body constitution. So you're one of nine different categories. And in those categories, it will predispose you to different sickness and disease. And so it was believed that you should eat the right foods in order to alleviate all the imbalances and actually to avoid any imbalances that you have. So well, how do you determine the right foods? Well, you actually eat according to the current season, you eat according to the climate, and you basically you eat whatever is readily accessible to you because they believe that whatever is accessible is usually nature's way of telling you that that's the best. So I, I think Chinese medicine, it's, it's pretty much a, a natural way of living to me more than a spiritual practice that is sometimes portrayed these days. 
Yeah, I think I heard something a while ago and it really it really took me back because I didn't even think to consider it before. But it was someone saying that potentially we shouldn't be eating blueberries all year round because realistically blueberries wouldn't be available to us all year round because of when, yeah, when winter comes around and everything's frozen over, you wouldn't be getting those. And yet they're shipped from all of these foreign countries where we can access them all year round. So can you talk on that? I think that's a really interesting one because a lot of people will say to me in this, you know, in the winter seasons, which we've just passed, I just want warmer foods. And if I'm honest, I never really understood that concept. Perhaps that's because I didn't lean into it when I was younger, but it does feel more innate and intuitive. So can you speak on that a little bit more? Sure. I think a lot of times food choices are more intuitive than we think because I, I know that most of us, including me, I spent 10 years in the US. Well, I, I benefit from globalization where I could literally eat foods from Africa uh, if, I, if I want to and I'm in Hong Kong. And I think the illustration that I would use to people is, let's say today, if I'm in Mexico in the summer and right, I'm sitting by a beach, would I go for hot chocolate or would I, would I go for coconut water or watermelon? I think the choice there is, is obvious. I would go for watermelon or coconut water. And on the other hand, two, two years ago, when we're still allowed to travel, I was in Sweden in, in December for Christmas. And it was cold. I mean, it was negative 20 degrees. And, and at that time, if I asked you the same question, would you rather have cold coconut water, watermelon, or would you have warm chocolate? I think the answer would be warm chocolate. So I, I, I think a lot of these foods are more intuitive than we think because when we are when we're hot, say the summer, we want foods that cool us off. And in TCM, they, they think that tropical fruits like coconut and watermelon it cools off the body. And on the other hand, if you look at warm chocolate, they, they think that it warms the body and it's good for cold weather. So I would say if you just kind of sit back and think of the foods that are traditionally associated with different seasons, then you would be living in accordance with kind of the fundamental principles of and that obviously varies on the different countries that you're in as well. Because for someone like me, I go from summer to winter to spring to, and, and it might even be in the space of three months, which it, I think if, if I'm honest, I've definitely felt that just transitioning from a cold winter over to like the, the heat of Dubai was fantastic. But also when you realize that you've kind of been escaping the cold for the majority of the year, there is something that about you that feels almost a little bit out of sync, let's say. Because even if you are in one country that's mostly got a warm climate, you still experience the quote unquote colder seasons, even if that is just a few degrees lower. So yeah, it's an interesting concept, which once again, I think, like you mentioned, we do know intuitively, but I want to come back to the point on nine different constitutes. How do we start to work out where we fall within that bracket? What type of imbalances we potentially have? And then obviously the next step will be to hopefully resolve some of those. Well, that's a great question. Well, uh, I have to plug my book because in part two of the book, we have a questionnaire for, uh, for readers to find out. But in reality, if you go to a TCM practitioner, they would usually do complex diagnosis. So they look at your tongue, they look at your, your kind of your health in terms of your, your skin. They take your pulse and they ask you a bunch of lifestyle questions. And then the diagnostic methods in TCM is quite complex. But again, because we do want to make that easy to digest, so we just have a questionnaire. And basically, these are the questions that people would ask you when you go to the clinic. But in, instead of having a practitioner asking you, we just incorporate all of these questions in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So after they figure out, let's say, your body constitution, say in, in Hong Kong, uh, most of us, because it is quite hot here, so perhaps our body, if you think of our body as a spectrum, you've got the cooler side and the warmer side. And let's say if my body is on the warmer side, then the first thing that they will actually tell you to do is to eat certain foods. Because in Chinese medicine, one distinctive difference between Chinese medicine and Western medicine is that food is considered medicine. 
in Chinese medicine. So food can be medicine, medicine can be food, and they believe that the effects of food can cure disease. So they usually ask the food that you're having, and, and as a result, they prescribe food. And once they do that, they'll probably take you to the table where they do some TCM modalities. So they might do cupping, they might do gua sha, which is scraping, or they might insert needles into you, uh, which are acupuncture. Yeah, so a lot of those ones that we've kind of come across before, but they still seem a little bit esoteric almost. It is. And 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 tell you what, the whole idea of diary balance, my book, it came about when I was in my master's because in one of the statistics course, we had the chance to research on whichever topic we want. And for me, I wanted to know about the efficacy of cubbing because not a lot of people are doing cubbing on social media these days. And I wanted to kind of understand, okay, does it work? Uh, how does it work? And... It comes back to the fact that there are two perspectives. One, the Western side. The Western side focuses on the soft tissue. So we're trying to clear out any adhesions or obstructions within the connective tissues. And then on the Eastern side, they talk about sickness and clearing out toxins, clearing out qi. And and I just thought that, okay, I need to write a book and unpack this. Because to me, who grew up in Hong Kong, it just didn't make sense. But now it does. Yeah, of course. And with your exposure as you were younger, you mentioned that you didn't have much interest into it until you started your studying and that was a lot later in life so why were you not drawn to it i guess you were maybe delivered certain foods certain approaches when you were younger but what made you think okay well now is the time to go into this and why didn't it catch on when you were a child yeah i think if you ask any chinese medicine practitioner and and no offense to all the great practitioners out there but even if you if you go on different podcasts these days right as 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 part of the research process i'd listen to different podcasts just to see how they present their information People are, rarely do you find someone who can tangibly explain TCM in an easy, easy to digest manner, other than the fact that, oh, you big balance, drinking herbal tea is good for you because you have to be sane. And, and, and I think it's more of the entrepreneurial side almost um, because I really want the athletic community to understand Chinese medicine because if people have been using it in China for thousands of years, and if people are utilizing cubbing, gua sha, or acupuncture and scraping, then they need to know the perspective. And so I, I think that's the main reason why I went back. Uh, it is because I kind of have, I don't want to say a calling, but certainly in terms of the business side of things, we, we think a lot about how we can contribute to the industry. Uh, because when you can contribute something, then you have a competitive advantage, etc. And for me, with my background, I thought it would be, I would be the perfect person to look into this. And the more I look into it, the more I realized that the two perspectives, they're closer than people think. Yeah, I really do think so. And so I would say it's, it's more, more that I feel like I have to find out for the athletic population and the fitness community rather than I, I was naturally interested because of a moment I had. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure that you, explains it. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think what my first thought there was is that do you believe that it's the current way that we live our life that leans us so far away from what feels innate and we just feel like we're so overwhelmed with everything else that we need to do that we just want the quick fix? Do you think the modern way in which we live our lives is causing that issue? I, I definitely think so. I mean, the isolated approach to quick fixes, no patience, give me now. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, do you believe that's why it's not reached the mainstream yet? Do you think it's a combination of maybe it not being digestible, so not really being able to be accessible to everyone? And then also you do see, you know, the cupping photo of some famous influencer who has done it, but everyone's just more fascinated with the massive circles it creates on your back versus what it's actually fundamentally doing. So do you think that's part of the reason why it's not reached the mainstream yet? 
Mm, I think also as part, of the, part of the reason is that uh, there's not much evidence on it. You know, we, we, if we get into how research is done, then we know that, yes, research is great in theory, but there's there's also flaws within the system. And I think we, at least in, in the fitness world now, I think a lot of people kind of promote their business as scientifically based. And that seems to be the buzzword of the fitness industry. And with a seemingly lack of uh, evidence out there, I, I, I can see why it might not appeal to a lot of people. Because just say, if you just start Chinese medicine and science, the first few websites that you see would be like, oh, Chinese medicine is not based on science. And, and I think that would put a lot of people off already. Uh, yeah, even though if you kind of look into the definition of evidence-based practice, yes, it's scientific, but you also have to look at the client's preference and you also have to speak through experience. And, and for Chinese medicine, it is time-tested. So that's certainly something worth considering. You know, if it really doesn't work, would it exist for thousands of years, you know? And I think it's, it's, it's a point that, that is worth pondering, certainly. Because, yeah, we might be wasting our time, but I'm sure there, there's wisdom that we can extract from it. Yeah, and I think if you look back at things that are currently becoming more mainstream, which would have seemed a little bit more esoteric, a little bit more spiritual, such as meditation, for example, which is making a huge, huge move into our modern day society. And a lot of people initially would have moved away from the fact that, okay, there's, there might not be any science here just yet. I think now we, we can look into it and there is definitely science around breath work specifically and meditation itself. But a lot of people were just like, this just feels right. You know? And I think that based on what you mentioned there, I think if anyone had any hesitations, I guess the main answer would just be to try it and see how you feel. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree. Try it and and just try to not make it spiritual because I think that's the main concern that, that certainly people have. And for me, especially if you look at diet balance, you know, we have movements in there. We don't call it Qigong because whenever you say things like meditation, Qigong, and they think that it gets spiritual. But for me, all these things are just movements. And, and if you're doing meditation, you're breathing. And so think of it as a breathing practice, approach it like a movement session. And, and I think that would at least kind of deter you from stereotyping it or from labeling what you do into you know, a certain spirituality or whatever label that you put it on it. Yeah, I like that. I think it's really practical because sometimes when you suggest meditation to someone and they're so anti and then you say, hey, this CEO is doing it. And they're like, oh, okay, maybe there is some efficacy to it here. This guy's doing it and he's getting some benefits and maybe I will as well. So let's just take the spiritual aspect out of that. But something you do touch on quite a lot is the body's links to the emotions. And I thought it was interesting that you said in your book that I don't need to explain the link that the emotions in the body has. And I think fundamentally, we all understand what that feels like. But I think realistically, we don't actually quite fathom that because I'll be speaking to someone who's on a journey with myself and they will be hitting their nutrition well, their training's going well, but you can tell how stressed out they are, how poor their stress management is. And I'm trying to give them the advice that, hey, fundamentally, if we can work on this, your results are probably going to come through. Everything's going to be a little bit easier, but people don't think of it. Like if I say that, they don't think of it as effective if I make a calorie change or if I add an extra 30 minutes of cardio to their session. So can you explain that link a little bit deeper? Because I think people fundamentally understand, but practically they don't believe it's got the same power as potentially looking into your training or your nutrition, for example. Sure. I think for anyone who's listening out there, all you have to imagine is, let's say tomorrow I have an important interview or I have a work appraisal with the boss or I have an important game coming up. You know, How does that make you feel an hour away from that important event? Well, usually your stomach starts to be upset a little bit because you're like, oh man, I, I'm kind of having butterflies in my stomach. You know, conversely, you look at other things 
I think most of us have have made decisions based on our gut feeling. And and I think again, this fact ties back to history because I think based on the way that we use our language, we know that the gut and the brain are intricately linked and there's a connection going on there. So whenever we are stressed, whenever we're in fight or flight, in order to prime our body to move well or to move quickly, our muscles tense up. Well, why why do the fascia and the muscles tense up? Because buffalo blood flow is sent to your fascia and your muscles in order for you to actually start moving. So as a result, your digestion will be temporarily halted for a little bit and you won't digest very well, which explains why your stomach feels upset because your body is utilizing its resources onto other areas so that you can perform better at the task that you're about to do. So this is how stress affects digestion because if you're stressed, then you won't digest very well. But the problem is not only are we stressed nowadays kind of throughout the day, which is kind of stress cumulatively for an extended period of time for the entire day. And I think that's kind of essentially what's what's the problem because we're not digesting well at all. And, and so if we can address that issue, then we can make sure we're utilizing all the superfoods that we eat. Well, I think it's just an afterthought. Yeah, that's what I just wanted to ask as well. What is the impact of that if our digestion isn't able to run optimally what what does that look like practically for someone who's basically more concerned about their weight loss efforts and their aesthetics versus anything else yeah i think if you if you're not digesting your food well which means you're not really absorbing the, the nutrients from the food then all sorts of stuff can happen right you you kind of add sometimes you you look at someone and they might be heart gain like i'm i you know, body transformation could mean that I'm trying to put on 15 pounds. And it doesn't matter what I'm eating, I'm just not digesting. On the other hand, you've got those who are trying to shed a few pounds and it's just not working either. But I think the reason why that is, is if you're under chronic stress the whole day, then it kind of changes your body's natural mechanism to, to function. And, and it's hard to say that this will cause this because in reality, it could cause a magnitude of different effects depending on the way your body is kind of constructed. So I would say... To make it simple, I think if you're under stress, it just affects the way you digest. So you won't be able to fully utilize the amazing nutrients that's within the food. And to add to that, if uh, we look at food quality compared to what it was maybe like 50 years ago, the quality of the food and the nutrients isn't nearly as good. So if you're already you're already fighting kind of a bit of a losing battle there, so to not have your body be able to utilize or assimilate those nutrients is certainly going to be problematic. I agree. I mean, I think we're, it's quite, we, we do live in dark times in a way. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit better in some areas of the world, but I think, yeah, it's better that maybe it's all we're used to, I guess. So at least we don't know what food was like, maybe for some of us, maybe like 50, 60, 70 years ago. And obviously our bodies are tapped over time. But coming back to what we've mentioned in terms of practical aspects of like digestion and everything along those lines. I think in my personal experience, I can feel it. You know, I know that as soon as I get more stressed than normal, my digestion is the first thing to go. So like physically and, you know, physiologically, physiologically, I can genuinely feel it. And it's, it's quite a, a visceral reaction as well. So it's one of those things that I think we can intrinsically link together. Are there any other kind of links aside from digestion that you find that people have maybe when they are under stress? Is there other physiological aspects that take place when the emotions, emotions starts to run wild? Yeah, in Hong Kong, I do a lot. I do quite a few of corporate webinars and corporate talks, and usually one of the most popular topic is lower back stiffness. Oh, I just feel so stiff. I just feel so stiff all the time, and it doesn't matter what stretches I'm doing. I just feel stiff, and usually this is where I kind of tie it back to the emotional side. 
because if we're upregulated, if mentally we are in that fight or flight, we have to tense up because if we don't tense up, we can't run the hundred meter dash. And, and, you know, at work, even though it really isn't fight or flight, but your mind is triggered to think that way because you think if I don't do my work well, I'll be fired. And if I'm fired, I'm worthless. And so you've got all these fight or flight triggers. And as a result, then you stiff all the time. Uh, that's one. And number two, the connection can go both ways. So my mind can influence my fascia, but my fascia can also influence my mind. So in the book, Deathbound by Dr. Kelly Starrett, he talked about how, you know, this extended prolonged hunting position, it encourages shallow breathing. And as a result, it's think is tricking the mind into fight or flight because the body thinks that you're trying to prime it that way. So usually I would say that it's a chicken and an egg problem because you're doing both of them at the same time. So not only are you under chronic mental stress, you're also under a lot of, you're very idle. So so your fascia is quite rigid and tight, which also triggers the sympathetic nervous system or the fight of life system. So um, I would say usually this is how the emotions and our soft tissues are linked as well. And I want to tie your definition of what we are essentially looking to create within this, because a lot of people think that we need to get back to equilibrium, which almost sounds like it's not in the presence of stress. But what I liked that you mentioned was it was like, it's a sliding scale. It's almost a range. So can you talk on your definition of what equilibrium looks like? Because if, when I listen to it, it sounds like dead in the center. That's what we assume that it is, right? We just need to be completely balanced. But I like the way that you described it was a range. So can you go through that for us? Sure. Yeah, we, we believe that the balance is is obviously referred to what in the West is called homeostasis. So homeostasis is referring to the self-regulating process that humans go through to ensure that we're kind of at the optimal point for human performance. And in the West, it's portrayed as this point that we have to be balanced. So in terms of our pH, our body temperature, etc., everything has to be balanced. But in fact, although it is a very narrow range, uh, almost constant, but it's always kind of moving uh, ever be so slightly. And with, with the title of our book, we want to point that out, that a lot of times we think of homeostasis as a binary process. Are you balanced today? Uh, and, and, but that's, that's exactly not how we should approach it because every single day when you wake up, you know, you're in a different mood and you're impacted by different factors. And as a result, every single day is same, same, but different. We should do slightly different things every day, depending on how we feel mentally and how our body feels physically. Yeah. I really like that. I think it's important because of the way that I was thinking of it is that when we go into the gym, we want an increased heart rate. We want uh, increased blood pressure to ensure that we're getting the right supply of blood and nutrients to our muscles. But it's almost a sense if we always think that, okay, we need to be right on the middle, like you said, with a certain amount of blood pressure to a certain amount of pH level. It always has to be this one set thing, but I like the idea of it being in a range and also maybe just understanding that if you are a little bit slightly to the left or slightly to the right, it doesn't actually matter as long as in the broad scheme of things, you are within that range, which is homeostasis, which you mentioned. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, just to piggyback on that, a lot of times nowadays with all the meditation craze that's going on, people kind of see stress as, oh, no, no, let's afford stress. But the whole point is our body is highly adaptable, right? You can go from countries to countries, time zones to time zones, and, and you'll be okay. And it is actually perfectly fine for us to feel stress because the right amount of stress is conducive to performance. You have to be a little bit of anxious in order to kind of get, get the day started and perform at your best. Uh, but the problem is, is it too much? And so I think we, when it comes to emotions, certainly what we want to point out is that different emotions are okay. And, and nowadays we should stop trying to trick ourselves into avoiding different emotions as if they're super bad because it's, it's, it's the amount of time that you 
that you're stuck in it that makes it insidious. I think that's such an important point to mention. If we look at, again, from a physiological perspective, you need cortisol to kind of wake up in the morning. And that's considered this bad stress hormone. And it's like, well, cortisol needs to be there in order for you to actually get out of bed and be alert. But the idea is that it's not supposed to stay at chronic levels all day, especially late into the night, right? So with that being said, you have a young baby at home and you have a wife as well. How do you incorporate these principles into your home life with your family? Yeah, wow, great question. And I have a 17-month-old baby. And well, it's funny, yesterday I was on a podcast that talks about my morning routine. And, and I was saying transparently that a lot of times we, as, as a newborn dad, I, I don't really dictate my morning routine because I have a human alarm clock and he kind of wakes me up. <laughs> and and I think for me, it is super important for me to incorporate breathing practice throughout the day because there's nothing worse than waking up to the sound of a crying baby. I mean, you have been on flights before where there's a baby right next to you. And uh, I mean, no offense, babies are so cute. I love my baby boy. But if he's, if he's crying, you just want to be like, hey, can you just chill out a little bit <laughs> and, and then let me sleep? So I, I, I think being woken up like that every single day, it, it definitely amps up the cortisol levels and the sympathetic state. So the first thing that I do in the morning is actually I incorporate my breathing practice. Nothing weird. I just take deep breaths just to calm down. Because more likely than not, my son is okay. I mean, he's just trying to get my attention because he wants me to play with him. And, and, and knowing that, I can calm my nervous system down. That's the first thing I do. The second thing I do throughout the day is I ensure that I'm hydrated. Not only in the uh, water sense, like I get a lot of fluids in, but actually I do different movements because they say motion is lotion. Uh, if I don't get enough movements in, my body will stiffen up because you can think of like a sponge that we talked about in the book. If... if Let's say today, if there's no hydration in the sponge, it's hard and stiff. That's what happens to our muscles sometimes. So I have to make sure I, I get proper uh, hydration, both from liquids as well as from movement side. That's so uh, crucial, that point to make there, because if, that must be such a deep evolutionary instinct to be like, my baby is crying, I need to go get to it to ensure that it's going to stay alive and I can preserve this, especially as a newborn. I think there's a point, I'm not sure what it is from a evolutionary science perspective, but there is a certain point in which the baby or younger child reaches a certain age in which those kind of instincts and those signals, they downregulate a little bit because of it has a little bit more autonomy. But when they are so when they're an infant and so reliant on yourself. And just to think of how many parents must be listening now who wake up to that sound every morning, don't regulate their breath. They're on to the next task and the next task and the next task, especially if they are already stressed and maybe they've got work coming up and they are keeping those levels elevated. I think that's such a valuable thing to mention. And then as you mentioned with the hydration, then they go and sit at their desk potentially all day to go to work and they're just missing out on that hydration and that breathing. And I can only imagine the impact that has over the course of two, three years as your child is just slowly getting to a point in which it can kind of manage itself to some degree. Yeah. And then guess what? All these three-year-old parents, they go find a body transformation coach. They're like, Hey, okay. My son is in preschool now. I'm ready for this. So then they go on another extreme diet. Okay. I'm going to cut everything out and I need to see transformation. So I, I think it's just an insidious cycle all over again. And I think that people need to realize that, Hey, you know, if you can just do small things throughout the day, I think they'll add up to quite a remarkable difference. Mm. And what does your personal training and nutrition regime look like currently? Me, I, well, I don't count my calories, although I, I am educated in, in the Western nutrition. I, I kind of just eat whatever, whatever is available. I, I eat according 
to my satiety levels and I don't eat any fried foods. So, um, and I don't eat any processed foods actually very minimal if I do. And so that's kind of what I do. I look at what's in season and I look at what's organic. So when I actually eat meat and stuff, I, I try to get those grass fed cows and, and try to avoid any type of processed food if possible. Let's go through breakfast, lunch and dinner. I'm intrigued. I want oh, Hey, I love it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> This morning, I did a soup-based noodle. So I woke up, I had udon, and I put in some clams. I, I added in some corn, some fresh vegetables, and some tofu. Kind of, so I get some seafood, I get some carbs, I get just two different kinds of vegetables. So that's kind of how I start my day. And then I think lunchtime, I, I made some uh, fajitas hey, here in Mexico. And so I, so I added in, uh, although that's more American than Mexican, I'm sure. <laughs> I added in different peppers, uh, so different colored peppers. And I did chicken and lightly seasons. And then I, I did the tortilla wraps and stuff like that. And then I, I had some afternoon tea where I got coffee and I had some cheese. Also made from natural milk. Uh, so I, I want to be as raw as possible. And then for dinner, just now my mom cooks. So I had rice, some veggies, I think three different types of meat and, and then four different types of vegetables. So I would like to say my, my day is quite well balanced and I don't think too much about, I don't stress over my diet too much just because I know if I stick to my core principles of just eating less processed foods, I, I don't eat too full. I mean, I usually stop at 80% full as well um, because I realize that's usually a good time to stop. So that's kind of how I'm living today. I like that. That's a really nice approach. And I think that's what most people aspire to have. I think what I find with a lot of us is that we need that nutritional education. But most of us, after the point in which we've got the fundamentals in place, we don't want to be spending too much brain space or headspace thinking about what we have to eat or you know how many calories we should be consuming. I think the goal for everyone I work with is to ultimately get to a point where intuitive eating is in place. But I do think you have to take some time to get there because it's not as intuitive as we might think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, great point. I think we all have to be educated on a lot of things. And, and certainly we want to strive for variety because there is a variety of, you know, there isn't only salmon out there as a fish. I mean, you want to get different types of fish out there and, and explore different foods. One thing I have to say for sure is when it comes to nutrition, we make it a point to say that you have to eat what's culturally acceptable. Um, because I think one one stigma that people have with Chinese, uh, Chinese medicine is that people eat funky foods, right? You eat whatever funky foods you can find online. But in fact, that is false. <laughs> because I think in, in the historical doctrines, it just tells you to eat whatever is acceptable near you. So if something is not acceptable in your eyes, then you can always know that there's an alternative. I like that point. That's a really good point. And in your training right now, I know that you are a little bit limited in what you can do, but what are you doing right now to keep yourself in shape? Because you're on the note of your nutrition as well. Your body composition is fantastic. You're in a great place from that perspective. So for anyone listening, thinking, oh, that sounds like a lot of food. Andy is pretty in, in decent shape, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, 11, per, uh, 11% body fat. I mean, I've never gone past 11 really. I, and I don't count my calories and a lot of people sometimes to get jealous, but I tell them, no, you just have to take care of your emotions and your diet and these things you it will fall into place and in terms of training i i'm a big proponent of movement-based approach so kind of tying back to the podcast that you talked about where you're chasing after a train in london i i believe that what we do inside the gym should be transferable to activities outside the gym so we tie back to the introductory story where i talked about uh, my original fitness routine, you know, I wanted to become a better footballer. So guess what? The coach, he was like, hey, you need to get on the leg race machine. 
because if you can raise your legs up high, you know, this will mimic the kicking motion. And if you do this well, you kick the ball further. And you can shoot the ball, <laughs> you can shoot the ball like Roberto Carlos. And I was like, yeah, right. And so I did a lot, <laughs> I did a lot of them like races, but it, it, it didn't help. And what I realized down the years was that if I just, if I can just learn to move better, then that's going to translate and equate to better movement thereby better sports performance. So that's kind of what I do. I look at the foundation movements, the push, pull, squat, hinge, rotation, carry step, depending on, on the train of thought that you're with. Uh, and I just go from there. Amazing. That sounds pretty well balanced. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Because I, I, you know, for me, I, I just don't have the luxury to do bodybuilding. Uh, although I, I'd love to when my kid, that becomes a bit older a few years down the line because hats off to all bodybuilders. Cause I think even though people, let's say from my side, the functional side or whatever, sometimes I think people on, on my side, they, they bash on these bodybuilders saying that it's, Oh, it's not useful in uh, for sports and they're only doing it for the looks. People underestimate how hard it is to be so disciplined and to be in the gym for so many hours. So uh, even though I, I say that perhaps bodybuilding type training might not be conducive to athletic performance, please know that I still respect and, and honor the great bodybuilders out there. And I also think it's worth noting how universal bodybuilding made training full stop. I think if you look into sports like Olympic lifting, if you look at just going down that functional route, a lot of it's quite complicated, but most people can turn up to the gym and do three sets of 10 of a bicep curl. Most people can go and do three sets of 10 of a leg press, which is not to take anything away from it. Cause like I said, at the highest level, it's very, it's very challenging. It's very demanding, but at the same time, it's made it so accessible for people. So I think that the principles have been fantastic and have served us really well, but they shouldn't be the only principles that we look towards. And I think, yeah, making that transition is going to be an important one. So my final question for you, Andy, is what impact do you want to have on the health and fitness industry? For me, I want to contribute what I can. And if I look to my background, I, I, as I said, I grew up in Hong Kong and I have a little bit of a different insight to your average strength and conditioning coach. So I want to make sure I'm contributing to the world using my own unique perspectives perspectives and i also know that i can clearly explain information in a easy to digest manner and and so i can use my talents in explaining different concepts so that people again don't have to waste time so moving forward if i can continue doing that if i can continue growing, growing my brand globally then i'll be very happy and satisfied beautiful answer so dynamic balance integrating principles of traditional chinese medicine into strength and conditioning where can people pick up the book if they're interested in reading more Oh, beautiful book cover. They can get it. So <laughs> they can get it across all major book retailers. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Hudson, everywhere books are sold. Fantastic. And if people want to follow you personally, where's the best place to find you? Sure, they can find me on Instagram. My Instagram is Andy T-S-Z-C-H-I-U, Andy. And they can also go to my website, teachu.com and find relevant information there. Amazing. I'll put all the links in the show notes. So if you are interested in picking up the book or finding Andy online, it will be there. Thank you so much for today, Andy. I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.